I do think it's important in the short term that any marketer who's looking to speak to people understands all the emotional undercurrents that are going on and, and speaks in ways that are relevant to where people are emotionally before it starts saying, and by the way, look at all these wonderful products that we have that we can sell to you. Hello and welcome. I'm Rob Levitt and you're listening to C-Suite Marketing, expert conversations on executive engagement. C-Suite Marketing is brought to you by our friends at Boardroom Insiders, a business intelligence platform that makes executive engagement easier than ever. Learn more at boardroominsiders.com. Learn more about this podcast at itsma.com. You'll find today's show notes, other episodes of C-Suite Marketing, and all sorts of other research and insight on executive engagement. And please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Now for today's show. I'm here today with Jonathan Kapolsky. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks, Rob. Delighted to be with you today. Typically, Jonathan, when I introduce guests on the podcast, it's a quick one-liner like so-and-so is running the executive engagement program. But you, there's a lot more to talk about. So why don't you actually give us a quick intro? Well, thank you for the opportunity. I am a senior lecturer at Northwestern University. And uh, in addition to teaching in our program at Medill, which is our journalism school in integrated marketing communications, I also run a program in business marketing strategy at Kellogg, which is our business school. And I'm also the executive director for our research center, which is called the Spiegel Research Center, which we're really looking at the relationship between customer engagement and uh, profitable business outcomes. So I spent 20 years prior to joining the Northwestern faculty as a senior partner at Deloitte, where I was a senior client partner focused on marketing and business strategy for our clients. And in addition, ran our thought leadership programs, both in the US and globally for all of our businesses and served as the CMO for our consulting business here in the US. Fabulous, Jonathan. And I'm going to pull on all of those threads. So your academic hat, and your research hat for sure with Spiegel and Northwestern and uh, your great experience at Deloitte. And you also didn't mention you've written a couple of books and you've got, I know you're working on a new book, which I want to get into a little bit later in the discussion. Let me start with just a big question, though, because you've been at this, uh, you're a bit of a gray beard like myself, and uh, you know, you've been at this for a couple of years at least. Deloitte certainly lives in the C-suite. You operate, you market, you sell, you deliver, you work at the executive level. I'm curious what you think at a high level, if you look back 10 years, 15 years, what some of the changes have been in how we engage at the executive level. You know, it's funny. I, I think we all crave people who are, are trying to sell to large organizations. We crave engagement with the executive suite because we believe that by building this halo, this wonderful relationship with the executive suite, that will cascade down to potential buyers in the organization. And the reality is that the CEOs of large organizations actually don't buy that much in terms of technology products or professional services. But once again, we believe that there's a halo that influences the uh, decisions that others make in the organization. And, and many other C-suite executives, the CIO, the chief HR officer, the chief technology officer, et cetera, 
those are important buyers for lots of services. So, you know, we, we would love to engage with them. We'd love to engage with them substantively around issues that are important to them, uh, both as a way of understanding what are their hot buttons so that we can bring the appropriate set of offerings to them, but also as a way of convincing them that we are knowledgeable and capable and confidence and we can demonstrate expertise in those areas. So I think it's a delicate dance, if you will. We're trying to extract useful insights about what's on their minds at the same time convincing them when they say, ah, I'm worried about digital transformation, that we can introduce our capabilities and competencies and expertise in that area. Now, I know this is something you've studied. You mentioned the, the research center at Northwestern, but the rise of digital has given us new ways to engage, new ways to deliver ideas and content, and also new ways to measure the interaction as we do that. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about some of what you've been seeing and learning uh, as you've taken more of a research-based look at that. If I get back into my time machine and go back a number of years, you know, we, we know that uh, at one time, engagement was often, we'd bring along a a printout with a, a white paper, an article that we had published, and maybe we published it ourselves, or maybe we published in Harvard Business Review or MIT Slow Management Review, and said, look, we got this great stuff, you should read it, and then why don't we have a conversation about that? And that's how the world kind of used to operate. As you know, because ITSMA had done lots of research, that's still the way a lot of thought leadership and executive engagement happens. It's still that physical piece of paper that we're handing to somebody who then says, okay, wow, this looks pretty good. And I think now increasingly things happen through the internet. Right? So somebody says, gee, I, I'm, I'm troubled about some of the challenges that my organization is having with digital transformation. What do people have to say? And I do a Google search or a Bing search or whatever and popped up a bunch of stuff. And now I'm kind of sorting through this. And I think all the professional services organizations, as well as many of the members of ITSMA, have been much better about helping people to navigate to what they have to say about these things. And it may be through apps on their mobile phones, it may be through their web pages, it may be through conferences and uh, executive workshops and other types of face-to-face -face venues where they present this stuff. And if, if anything, the space is getting a lot more crowded because it used to just be, you know, the top tier professional services firm. Now, each and every organization that I know of is trying to pursue the same strategy, which is selling at the top, which means engaging with executives. Right. And publishing thought leadership or hopefully something like thought leadership to get their attention. And now, you know, you ran thought leadership at Deloitte for a number of years, built a different publishing arm there. So you're at the forefront. I wonder, as you've seen that evolve and the space become much more crowded, what are some of the things that marketers should be looking at to help them create a distinctive voice? One that I've come to believe in, and this is based on some feedback that we had from clients as well as research that we had done on a um, anonymized basis, is that people actually want you to say something new. If I'm the fifth person to say the same thing that four other organizations are saying, it's not particularly novel or new. And I do think that there were some organizations for whom so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so have published something on this, so we need to publish as well. 
And so this notion of novelty, I think, is real important. And you know, the best kind of novelty comes from research. Historically, a lot of the research was survey-driven. I still see the bulk of research is still survey-driven. We'll go and we'll talk to 100 CEOs or 1,000 CEOs or 16,000 CEOs and so yeah. forth. And while that's useful, that's not the only way to do research. So increasingly, we can use data-driven research to look at things. We can look at click streams. How have people actually behaved? We can look at you know, spending patterns. We can do text analytics in terms of what they have said about their organization. A couple of years ago, we said, we want to take every single speech that a CEO has made or that people in the C-suite have made for a particular organization to understand what's important about them. And let's use text analytics and natural language processing to really understand what they say versus what they might say in a survey. And because this is what they're communicating to the public. Let's look at all the PR releases. Let's look at all the statements that they've made to the investment community and so forth. So I, I think what's expanded is not only the importance of novelty in terms of saying something different, but also the types of research that we can do now versus simply doing another survey. And, and by the way, I've done more than my fair share of surveys. I, I think surveys are good and important, and particularly when they're large scale, and particularly when they are done over a period of years and we repeat and we can see trends, but there are other ways to gather insights and information about what people are thinking. That's good. And I, and I think implicitly, you're also just underlying the importance of doing that research. It's, it's not a matter of just put out an opinion that might be different. It's got to be backed up. The, the other thing, Rob, is I also think there are much more novel ways for us to use technology to communicate what we have to say. And you know, it used to be, once again, we'd have this hard copy, black and white, maybe the innovation was that it was in color, but that was what we brought to, to people. And we can still do that. And, and there's something to be said for text, and a lot of us, including myself, love reading things, but now we can use technology to do podcasting. Now we can do immersive experiences using augmented reality. Now we can do interactive graphics where we can say, let me compare myself and I'll take my data and now you tell me how that fits in from a benchmark standpoint with a hundred other companies. So I think the technology that we're using to allow people to understand the insight and then use that understanding to compare themselves and benchmark themselves, that's gotten a lot better and a lot more immersive. I saw as one of the entries in ITSMA this year, how one of the organizations um, was it was using immersive technologies like augmented reality as a way to help to educate people about, ironically, new technologies. And, and so I, I think we're going to see more and more of that over time as well. So we've got technology changing the data we collect and technology changing the way that we present the data or the insights or the findings to people. Let me raise another issue that technology is changing, which is who we're trying to reach. You've written a book on uh, digital transformation. You've got another one that you're working on, but the kinds of executives that are now filling the C-suite have changed quite a bit over the last 10 years. We didn't used to have chief digital officers and chief data officers and you know information security officers and, and so on. And so we often need to be thinking more widely about who we're trying to reach with some of these, with some of the content and some of these approaches. 
Well, first of all, thanks for mentioning the book. So we published in the spring of 2019 a book called The Technology Fallacy. And when I say we, it was a combination of myself, Jerry Kane, who's a professor at Boston College, and two colleagues from Deloitte. And it was based on five years of survey data that we did, as well as a number of interviews. And we had more than 16,000 surveys that went into looking at this longitudinal trends. We're currently working on another book, and that's called The Transformation Myth. And that's really about how we used to think that, okay, now we do digital transformation, just like we used to do business process reengineering or total quality management, and then we're done, and we move on to the next thing. And the premise of this upcoming book is that, in fact, and we've seen this as a result of COVID-19, it's not a one-and-done thing, but digital transformation is an ongoing process that has to be refreshed because the world changes and circumstances changes. At the same time, we have this new flood of technologies that are allowing people to do things they couldn't before. Now, you mentioned something which uh, is a fascinating trend, right, which is, you know, everybody's a chief. And it's actually funny, we've got a couple of years ago when I was still at Deloitte, we had an opportunity to do a text analysis. So we looked at all the positions that were listed in public companies disclosure documents you know who were people who had the title chief and um, we're trying to keep track of you know what what was the new stuff and what was the old stuff and then we were also trying to look at you know whether they were shifting more to younger people shifting more to females shifting more to minorities as well as what was the tenure for some of these people and some of these roles came and went with individuals some were the only thing we could figure out when we looked at all that is that CFOs have been around for a long time, but so many of the other titles have switched. So even things that you know we used to call personnel then became HR, now become chief people officer, the head of you know information system that became this chief information officer became the chief technology officer. So you know some of the things are they're the linguistic conventions, but some of them also reflect the nature of the task, the challenge ahead has changed. So now we worry about cybersecurity. Who would have worried about it, you know, 15 years ago when we didn't have mm-hmm. as much access to, you know, different kinds of data stores that we do now. But th- this is something that 20 years ago was an issue, 15 years ago, a little bit of an issue, 10 years ago, a big issue, and now it's omnipresent. We'll be back after a very quick break. Enjoying the podcast? Want to learn more about C-Suite marketing? Send us a comment and we'll add you to a drawing to win a copy of my colleague Bev Burgess's book, Executive Engagement Strategies, How to Have Conversations and Develop Relationships that Build B2B Business. Okay, now back to the show. As marketers, we need to think differently and maybe more broadly about the audiences that we're trying to reach. How do you come at that question? I mean, you've, again, you know, from the Deloitte side, you worked in a number of parts of the business with your clients, but how do you kind of think strategically about defining an audience, defining a set of people that you're trying to reach? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Rob, because now we have to think about the stakeholders who are affected by this. So as you know, I work in the space of marketing, 
and have for a long time. I've been a chief marketing officer. I've sold to chief marketing officers. And I teach a course at Northwestern, which is around marketing technology. So it's the technology that's being consumed by marketers to change the way that they interact with various constituencies internally and externally. You know, I know that we've had Scott Brinker, who publishes a website, chiefmartech.com, and is a senior executive at HubSpot, speak at IPSMA organizations. Now, Scott, every year, publishes this landscape of marketing technologies, and it started out, I think, maybe eight years ago with 122 companies and now has over 8,000 companies and applications. And, you know, some of it's a, by design, a bit of an eye chart, like, oh my God, how am I possibly going to sort my way through all the different applications and all the different technologies? So now if I'm a vendor and I'm coming in, you know, whether it's a dominant vendor like a Salesforce or Adobe, or whether it's a niche vendor with a very small product that fills a specific need. And I have to think, how are they gonna make this decision, right? Because now I've got to talk to the CMO. The CMO may have appointed a chief marketing technology person. They may also be, now I've got to talk to the CIO because the CIO is gonna worry about how this fits into his or her marketing technology stack. I probably have to worry about, you know, somebody in the CIO's organization is going to be thinking about standards and going to be thinking about compliance, maybe somebody who's going to be thinking about safety. So now I've got to think about this broad set of stakeholders for what may be a couple hundred thousand dollar purchase and how they're going to be comfortable that my solution is going to work and not disrupt the enterprise. So I do think the challenge is more people involved because they all have a stake in the outcome. The other thing which has changed is you and I are not necessarily representative of the people making the decision. More diversity when it comes to gender, more diversity when it comes to age, more diversity when it comes to ethnicity and so forth. And that all means a very different way of selling than how it might when, with all due respect, the caricature of the senior executive tend to be white, tend to be male, tend to be in his 50s versus this group now. And they're bringing habits to the purchasing process, which are very different than the habits that you and I might have brought to the purchasing process a number of years ago. So much more comfortable with digital, much more comfortable with mobile. Now it's about, uh, you know, I need to see, I need to feel, I need to have trust. I'm going to look at references. So what I learned from buying from Amazon, what I learned from uh, looking at recommendations at Yelp, what I learned from all of my digital interactions, I'm gonna bring now to the B2B purchase process. And now as a vendor or supplier or manufacturer or brand, I need to be prepared for people who bought very differently. All of this is accelerated now with the COVID-19, with the sort of acceleration of digital transformation and new ways of working, new ways of collaborating uh, and all of that. So I think decision-making is a little more scrambled now as well, even beyond the bigger trends that you were just talking about. McKinsey published, uh, I thought, a very interesting set of uh, data back in April, and I think they're updating it now. So this is the end of April. So still somewhat early in the cycle of COVID compared to where we are now, we're doing this at the end of August. And um, what, what they documented was the shift to digital, surprise, surprise, 
They documented the shift to mobile, which I think is a little bit of a surprise. They documented the shift in their go-to-market models away from face-to-face -face sales to more remote sales. But what was also interesting is many of the people that they surveyed said they don't think it's going to go back to the way that it was. And that is the real question that I have, is which stuff will go back to the way that it was and which stuff will stay in this new model and will continue to accelerate towards more and more digital channels. Well, we will see, right? This path will unfold. It's been interesting at the, as a consumer watching things. I've, I've been to a few restaurants since COVID started and uh, some of the restaurants didn't have menus because you would scan like a code. I'm starting to see menus again. Uh, I've certainly never had my groceries delivered. Now I have my groceries delivered more and more frequently. I still go to the store occasionally, but I have more delivered. So I, I do think that w what has happened with COVID-19, and this is what our upcoming book is about, is how that has provided the trigger to change people's habits, right? Because we get habituated to behaving in a certain way. And um, I had the opportunity earlier this year to meet James Clear. And James has written the book, which for a number of weeks has been number one or number two on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list for business books called Atomic Habits. It's not so much about business habits, but he also has taken this to thinking about business. We behave a certain way because we form these habits. And as marketers, we need to be sensitive to these habits because habits are hard to change. That's the nature of habits by definition. And I think that COVID-19 is suddenly like taking us and shaking us so that we will step back from some of the habits that we have. So it's a wonderful opportunity for some companies to introduce new innovations that didn't previously work. When they introduce these new innovations, then people might try some different things and we'll see what works or not. So I, I think in the midst of all the problems and the challenges and the tragedies that we're going through with COVID-19, there's also a, a silver, silver lining, which is it gives us a chance to try some different things and we'll see some different behaviors and we'll see some things accelerate that we never believed would have accelerated because this has caused us to shed some old habits in the interest of worrying about things like safety and having to deal with um, hygiene issues, et cetera. Right. Well, it's actually, I want to stick with your new book because I think, you know, you talked about the premise being digital transformation is not an event. It's an ongoing process. But you also talk, I think, in the book about other kinds of ongoing disruption. And one of perhaps one of the biggest impacts of COVID-19 is even bigger than itself in the sense of, okay, we're working remote, we're much more concerned with social distancing and safety and hygiene and all of that. But maybe it's an even larger sense of just dealing with instability, dealing with disruption as a permanent feature. So look, uh, yeah, at the risk of saying something everybody knows, I mean, I think COVID-19 has been tragic. I mean, at the time we're talking over 176,000 people in the United States have died. Over five and a half million people have been infected with COVID-19. We don't know what the long-term effects are. So it, it is it's truly tragic. I think 
it's been interesting because as we've kind of worked through this book and the logic for the book, we've come up with this theory that there are uh, different types of disruptions. There's a disruption which is something that happens and wow, we've got to respond to it. It could be an earthquake, it could be a flood, it could be an epidemic. And, and at some point that um, disruption will sort of dissipate and potentially disappear. And then we have disruptions which either are long-term or appear to be long-term, like climate change. You know, unfortunately, I mean, we're on this sort of long downward curve of climate change that doesn't show any sign that it's going to reverse itself. You know, I remain hopeful that somebody will come in and help to change. But right now, that, that's a long-term secular trend. And um, we don't have to respond to it today, but if we don't respond to it at some point, you know, we'll get kind of caught up with it. So we suggested it's a little bit like um, illness. And when you're ill, you may have an acute condition. You go in the hospital, you go to see the doctor, you go to urgent care, you go to the emergency room, and they say, oh, here's the medication, or here's the treatment for it. Take this zip pack, five days, boom, and then you're gonna be better. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't get a recurrence of it, but we, we kind of have to respond right away. The alternative is something which is chronic. So you may have a heart condition, you're always gonna have the heart condition, you may never get rid of the heart condition, but your doctors hopefully will come up with ways to treat it and to ameliorate some of the problems and the challenges that you have because of the heart condition with the goal of getting you to resume a normal life or at least getting you to adapt to what your life is like as a result of this chronic condition. So we look at um, digital disruption, all the new technologies. That's a chronic thing. It's gonna, we're gonna keep on having new technologies. But we look at something like COVID-19 and say, that is this acute event. And boy, I better be prepared as a leader to respond to this acute event. I better understand you know, how quickly can I go from serving food in my restaurant where people come in to eat to take out and delivery? How quickly can I go from, I had a grocery store and now I have to worry about how people are gonna pay in the grocery store, so now I move, need to move to contactless payment because I don't want people handling this. Or I had a business which was focused on face-to-face -face meetings. I can't have face-to-face -face meetings, so how can I you know, sell digitally? What does that look like? Or you know, an organization like ITSMA used to having its annual conferences. What are we gonna to do to bring people together and provide that power that comes from convening, recognizing that we can't do it physically. So those, are those, you know, at some point, hopefully, we'll all be able to kind of get back, but some of those things will be things like, hmm, maybe we don't wanna get back. Maybe we'll kind of change. It's been interesting as a teacher. I teach, I mentioned before, both Medill and Kellogg, which are two schools at Northwestern. At Medill, we've had an online program in integrated market communications for, I think, over 10 years. And uh, this spring, I taught a class in our online program. But we also had students in the part-time program because we couldn't do the face-to-face, -face, so they joined my online class. And it was interesting. I could tell from the students without necessarily being able to identify who were the online people and who were the part-time people because the online people were used to this. And they had signed up for this. And for them, online 
was something that they made the decision and choice to get involved in. For the part-time people, it was a compromise. It wasn't what they signed up for, which were the face-to-face class. So maybe some of them walked away from the class saying, I can't wait to get back to -to face-to-face classes. Maybe some of them said, oh, this online thing is not that bad. Maybe it's actually good because I had a chance now to interact with a broader set of people. And, you know, we'll kind of figure all that thing out. I mean, there are some people who said, oh, well, maybe some universities will disappear as a result of the other experiences with teaching over Zoom. We've had the ability to teach online classes for many years, and as Northwestern is still alive and thriving as a face-to-face university. Right. Maybe there will be more online education, so maybe there will be more online conferences and more online this and more contactless, and that's what we'll see. So what the book is about is the challenge of the immediate responsiveness that's needed for these acute disruptions versus you know, how do we build a platform to deal with the chronic changes that are going on that we know are not going to go away? So let me flip that around a little bit and, and think about, again, for our audience as marketers trying to think creatively about how do we reach business executives that are dealing with both kinds of challenges right now? There's a major global acute challenge. And certainly there are more chronic challenges in in the terminology that you're using. Is this a kind of a step change? And so do we need to think differently about the kinds of, not just the tactics, but is there a bigger change that we should be thinking about as marketers trying to reach and build relationships and build collaboration with the business executive decision makers that we're all concerned with? Quick answer, yes, of course. <laughs> uh, it was a bit of a shut up question, I realize. <laughs> no, I, I think, look, for some of members of ITSMA, ironically, the COVID-19 has been a boon. So whether you're a UPS or FedEx, which now suddenly has to deliver more packages than ever before, or you're a Zoom, which is thinking about how do I accommodate all these people on these platforms. Right. So, so we do have... You know, some businesses which are in the uh, fortune of, you know, a tragedy has created a business opportunity for them. Um, And then we have other companies where the tragedy has also meant a fluctuation demand on the downward side and and how to think about this. I do think in the short term, we need to recognize that every leader whether it's in a business which is growing or, or in a business which is facing demand shortages, you know, it, it's going through some challenging emotional times. And I think the challenging emotional times, you know, fall into two categories. I mean, one, which is just a sense of fatigue. You know, they're being whipsawed around and how do I kind of deal with this fatigue? The second is a sense of grief which is I may have lost friends, I may have lost family, I may have people who are sick, or I may have lost customers, my customers are going out of business, et cetera. And, and I, I think one result of that is that actually people are more open now to advice and counsel than they've ever been. Everybody's looking around, who can help me? And um, one of my former colleagues at Deloitte said, it's never been easier for me to get a meeting with a senior executive than it has been lately which is ironic because you think, well, they're so busy, but they're looking for help and they're looking for assistance. I do think it's important in the short term that any marketer who's looking to speak to people understands 
all these emotional undercurrents that are going on and, and speaks in ways that are relevant to where people are emotionally before it starts saying, and by the way, look at all these wonderful products that we have that we can sell to you. Right. I think second is, you know, sort of figuring out what, what the right way to do this distance thing. Now, I can tell you once again, at the university, we're trying, what, what makes a good online class? And if the online class is simply, Jonathan gets up there and speaks for an hour and students do take notes and then uh, we're done, that, that's not a very good use of the medium. So I think we have to, some of that will come from trial and error. And what makes a good uh, sales meeting? What makes a good communications meeting? What, what can we do differently? And, you know, I, I think, once again, in the educational realm, I'm seeing lots of stuff, whether it's coming out of Harvard Business Review and Harvard Business School, about how to run online programs. We've done quite a bit of Northwestern trying to teach our teachers, you know, sharing people. We're inventing a lot of this stuff on the fly. But there's also a lot of established ways that people learn how they interact. Right. We're just about out of time here, Jonathan. I want to hearken back to your last book, The Technology Fallacy, because one of the things that to me was so interesting that you talked about in that book was the organizations that are more effective learning organizations do better. And yeah. I think maybe that's doubled or tripled now. So close us out with maybe a couple of thoughts on how can organizations be better at learning? Yeah, so one of the ideas that we had in the technology fallacy, and it's come back as we're doing the second book called The Transformation Myth, is that organizations that are digitally mature tend to have characteristics which allow them to take advantage of technologies. And one of the characteristics is this real learning mindset that they do a lot of testing and they're very good at testing fast, very good at learning fast, and very good at scaling fast. And I, I think that's very appropriate for the time that we are. So you know, my encouragement to people would be, how can I create things where I can learn quickly, events, opportunities, and so forth? And then how do I harvest the learnings from them? How do I then plow those back into the next thing and keep on doing and then scale real quickly? And what's changed now is that maybe in the past we had a year to scale. Now we have like two days to scale. Right, right, exactly. And we've got to become hyper, hyper fast about learning and so forth. So, you know, I, I do think after every single interaction that we have with a customer, we better say, what did I learn from that? What would I do differently? Organizations are sometimes reluctant to do they're sort of post-mortems and they're reluctant to because they don't want to look like they're blaming or criticizing people. So I'd say that ability to be very purposeful about drawing insights from what's working and what's not working, not as a way to you know, beat yourself up, but as a way to sort of say, oh, okay, that worked. That really worked when I, you know, we did the breakout room. That was good or it wasn't good. So I, I would double down around the importance of organizations that can test fast, learn fast, and scale fast as the ones who will be successful because this stuff is changing so quickly that we don't have the luxury to say, hmm, I'm going to build the plan for what, how we're going to roll something out over six months or 12 months or 18 months because God only knows what the world will look like. Right. 
you know, six hours from now, much less six months from now. And, and you know, it, it, at one level, it's kind of exciting um, because we, we we can try a lot of things. The other, you know, it's just we're living in tragic times, and I'm hopeful hopeful that we will, you know, survive this. The other thing I would add to learning is to close this off is not only do we have to learn fast, but we've got to be real good at improvising. That will be the new skill that will all become the second city versions of management in our, uh, in our next time at that. And that's a great way to end. Learning, improvisation, and the empathy I want to come back to that you highlighted as well. Jonathan, thank you so much. Really, really great conversation. Always a pleasure, always insightful for me, and uh, we'll look forward to continuing this conversation soon. Rob, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to C-Suite Marketing. I hope you got at least a few new ideas. Let us know what you think and send along any questions or suggestions for upcoming episodes. And if you really enjoyed the show, do us a favor and tell two friends. Do us another favor and check out our sponsor, Boardroom Insiders, a business intelligence platform that makes executive engagement easier than ever. Boardroom Insiders helps you close bigger deals faster. Learn more at boardroominsiders.com. And don't forget to visit us at itsma.com for more on this podcast and more insight and inspiration on executive engagement, account-based marketing, thought leadership, and other B2B marketing priorities. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.